0: Hello everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Spanish Hotel Podcast with me, Phil Kittromelidis and Sid Lowe. It's a big one, this podcast, usually is, after El Clasico. We had the first Clasico of the season, which saw Real Madrid beat Barcelona by two goals to one at the camp now. But it's a funny one, Sid, because the Clasico (laughs) probably shouldn't be saying this, or maybe we should. Maybe it's a great advert for the division. Clasico might have been the worst game of the weekend.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, I think I should probably point out at this stage that the two games that I had to cover were the two worst games of the weekend by by some way, because I did this <laughs> and Cadiz against Alaves for the radio on Saturday. Um, yes. I mean, the game of the year, the Classico, wasn't even the game of the weekend. It wasn't even the game of the day. As you say, it was definitely <clears throat> the worst that game of the day, because Sunday yeah. had some real belters, didn't it? And then And then... Yeah, the Classico kind of wasn't.
0: This is what happened on Match Day 10. On Friday night, Osasuna could have gone top of the table, albeit temporarily, uh, had they beaten Granada. They were on track to do so, but they conceded a, a ridiculous uh, 90th-minute equaliser. Angel Montoro scoring from way, way out. Osasuna goalkeeper Sergio Herrera going walkabout. It really is a quite ridiculous goal. Anyway, it finished. Osasuna won. Granada won. Then on Saturday, we had Valencia scoring twice... In injury time In the 93rd and 98th minutes uh, To salvage a 2-2 draw At home to Mallorca Then there was that Far from magnificent game between Cadiz and Alaves. Alaves getting their first away win of the season, uh, winning by two goals to nil. Elche against Espanol was an absolute belter. Uh, it finished two to uh, Espanol, seeing Raúl de Tomás score once again. And then Athletic Club uh, got a big win at home to Villarreal, beating them by two goals to one. Sunday saw the craziest game of the season so far, the highest scoring game in La Liga for well over two years. Sevilla five. Levante three, but this game could it could easily have ended eleven six. It was that crazy. <laughs> good, then we had the Clasico. Uh Real Madrid beating Barcelona two one at the camp, now a fourth consecutive Clasico win for Real Madrid. That hasn't happened uh, since the mid-1960s. Betis beat Rayo Vallecano by three goals to two. Rayo had pulled it back to 2-2, but then Betis got a penalty and duly dispatched it. And then another big game of the weekend, Atletico Madrid, the champions against leaders at Real Sociedad. Uh, La Real raced into a 2-0 lead before Atleti uh, pulled it back. Two goals from Luis Suarez, making it 2-2, although the point is keeps Real Sociedad at a point clear at the top of the La Liga table. And we're recording on Monday night, just an hour or so, before Sydney has to pop out and, and and watch Getafe against Celta, Sid. That is real dedication to your art, but it's what we've come to expect from you.
1: I mean, we, you know, we, as we've just mentioned, the two... I mean, I use the I... word
0: art in the loosest possible yes, sense. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely.
1: The two... The two... Perhaps less good games of the weekend were the two that I had to cover. I really hope this isn't going to be a, a magnificent hat trick in an otherwise belting weekend.
0: Uh, guys, if you're listening, I've got a suggestion why don't you come and join us over at patreon.com forward slash TSFP. It costs €4.25 a month. This week, we'll have a and a pod answering your questions, a bonus pod looking at La Liga's midweek match day 11. We'll have another episode of TSFP Presents discussing another iconic, messy moment. And you get producer Al's paper reviews And access to the TSFP Discord, which is a brilliant community of like-minded individuals, all for about a euro a week. It's pretty good value, so if you like Spanish football, you might want to consider joining us. All right, the talking points of the weekend. We said it wasn't the best game, but we have to start with the Classico, the most high-profile fixture. I was going to say in the world. I've spent the last 24 hours receiving constant non-stop tweets from people saying, it's not the biggest game in the world, that's Man United, Liverpool.
1: It is the biggest game in the world.
0: Well, I'm, tell sorry, us why it's the biggest I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
1: It well. is. It is. Uh, I, by the way, I, I assume they must have. And forgive me for my ignorance of cricket. I assume they must have played each other this weekend because I got loads of tweets telling me that the biggest game in the world is actually India against Pakistan, which which well. I have seen um, the World Cup that was in England. In what year would it be? Oof, 98, yeah. 99, something like that. I, I actually,
0: veering, veering dangerously off tangent here yeah we that, so
1: anyway and, and it was it was a lot of fun but I don't know if it was as big as the classical. anyway why is the classical the biggest in the world because um, because it is a you club you wrote a book about it yes obviously <laughs> it's a club game <laughs> with almost an international feel to it they are I think financially until the last year, I think, the two biggest clubs in the world economically. They are the clubs with the most Ballon d'Or winners. In fact, they've basically had all of the Ballon d'Or winners for the best part of, what is it, 18 years? Something like that. Um, They have One of them is the team that's won the most European Cups ever. The other is, admittedly, not the one that's won the second most, but I think the fourth most. They are two clubs with, I think, the two biggest club football stadiums in Western Europe. They have... Um, huge fan bases I just don't think there's a club game that has all of the ingredients that this club game has now it is true that right now these may not be the best two clubs in the world but I think it's still the biggest rivalry
0: Alright, that was a relatively strong argument. I was expecting a few more sort of facts and stats to back it up. but.
1: Well, I mean, well, have I, mean I haven't got the stats to hand, but I mean, I could, I could go through them with you if you want, but but it would take a while for me to go and fish them out and, and you know, kind of give you a, a cri- find my crib sheet and, and tell you the answers. <laughs>
0: Leave the crib sheet. Let's get to what actually happened uh, in the game. Obviously, Real Madrid uh, taking the lead in the first half. Um, a lovely, fantastic goal from David Alaba in his first Clásico. Uh, then they were pretty much in control. Barcelona, um, never re- I mean, they threatened a little bit, but they never really threatened. My overriding sensation was that Real Madrid were comfortable mm. in this game. Then they scored in injury time. Lucas Vasquez to make it 2-0 before Kun Aguero scored with pretty much the final touch. Of the game. Did you have a similar kind of sensation that Real Madrid, without being brilliant in this game, were more or less in control?
1: Yes, absolutely I did. Uh, like, absolutely I did. This was a game that I didn't think was a, a brilliant game. Um, I didn't think the performance from Real Madrid was brilliant. But I thought the re- performance from Real Madrid, to use Carlo Ancelotti's words, was pragmatic and intelligent. And it was what they had to do. And I think there is sometimes a slight snootiness about a team that plays on the counter-attack. And I think it's problematic for a couple of reasons. I think it's problematic because it assumes that playing on the counter is easy. It's simplistic, perhaps, but it doesn't necessarily make it easy to do. And I think it's problematic because I think it tends to come almost with a kind of an ethical side to the argument. As if this is somehow illegitimate and it's not illegitimate. And then I suppose there's a third thing, which is if this is the way to beat Barcelona... Why wouldn't you do it? And if this is the way that Barcelona think you're going to try and beat them, why wouldn't they do more to prevent it from happening? So that's the other part of this. And certainly in that first half, I was very, very struck. One player really, I think, outlined this to me, perhaps more than anyone else. And that player was Courtois. Mm. Every time Courtois got the ball, Real Madrid were on the attack. Because he would literally catch, boom, straight out. And they would go direct and they would go very vertical and they would normally go to Vinicius. It was amazing how often they looked to Vinicius. And yes, it was relatively simple. It was, there's a high Barcelona line beyond them or in front of them for Vinicius to turn and go at them. But more often than not, it was for Vinicius to turn and go beyond them. And and then everybody runs from there. And I suppose in a way that's indicated by the first goal, which is, it's true. It's a loss of the ball from Barcelona quite high up. But then it's Vinicius escapes, Rodrigo's running with him, and then it's Alaba, the centre back, who's run all the way from just in front of his penalty area into the other penalty area who scores. Look at the goal, the second goal that Real Madrid scored, it's Lucas Vazquez who scores it, who again has come all the way from his own half to score the goal. And I felt that Real Madrid were, were very, very clear in their minds this is what you do against Barcelona, this is how you go for them. Obviously, for, I think if you're going to individualise it, I think you can do it with two players. One is Vinicius, and two, and I hate to say this because I I feel like it's being cruel, but one is Vinicius, and the other is the man that was marking Vinicius, Mengetha. And I think that Mm. was a a really, really uneven matchup um, Mm. that that Real Madrid made the most of. And then, as you say, you then get this environment in which, okay, Barcelona have the ball, but it felt like that wasn't purely accidental from Real Madrid's point of view. It felt like that was partly designed. Okay, they can have it. And you're right, I didn't think Barcelona created almost anything once they'd had that death chance. I believe it was only two shots on target in the entire game. By the end of the game, and one of course is the is the goal in the 97th minute, which was too late.
0: The discourse from Ronald Koeman after the game wasn't entirely convincing. I, I he think seemed, he seemed to think they played pretty well.
1: I think it's I think it's very very interesting the discourse from him after the game. And I think it's interesting discourse from one or two others as well. And I think it's quite. We'll get
0: to Ramon Planes' question yeah. in just a okay. second. Okay.
1: Right. Well, let's st- let's stay with Kuman for the moment then. Yeah. And I think it's it's interesting, and I think it's explanatory up to a point. Now, first of all, as you say, I don't find it entirely convincing. Kuman was saying we play very well. It was only really the Pigada, you know, that ability to land the knockout punch. That meant that we didn't win this game. We had as many chances as them and clearer chances. Well, apart from the death one, I don't necessarily buy that. So that's one thing. I don't necessarily buy that idea that they that they played well. And Yes, they sort of played as well as Madrid in that they had a lot of the ball. They territorially had the advantage. But it felt like, of course, playing well, I think one way of defining it is to say, have you succeeded in doing the things you were planning to do, you proposed mm-hmm. to do? And I think Barcelona didn't. And I think Real Madrid, broadly speaking, did. I think it was partly designed. It wasn't just they were pushed back by by uh, Barcelona. Although Ancelotti did say after the game, I'd like us to have this solidity a bit higher up the pitch. I don't really want us to have this solidity quite so far back. Um, but I think, broadly speaking, Madrid did what they want. And so that's one reason why I didn't really buy that from Kuman, But the other reason why I think what Kuman said is, is is interesting is because it felt like... And this, of course, goes back to the, the it-is-what-it-is comments and goes back to Kuman talk about realism... It feels like this narrative, this discourse, is counterproductive. It's it's embracing, and I think deepening, a sense of inferiority. Which yeah. I think is problematic. Even if it is a reality, I think it's problematic. And I think that, from a player's point of view, if your manager is effectively saying, well, what am I supposed to do with this lot? I'm not sure if it necessarily helps very much. I think yeah. that if you have a club like Barcelona... And you approach the big games in a way that says, "Okay." And this game, in fairness, is different to the buying games. The buying game, for example, and the Benfica game. But we want the ball. But you know, we, there's this sense of impotence that's embraced, and I'm not sure that's that's a great thing. And I think what it does is it creates, even if on a subconscious level, it creates an excuse behind which players can hide, and it justifies, I think, a certain degree of. Not failure as such, but it justifies a degree of perhaps a lack of ambition or it justifies perhaps a a lack of being demanding. And now Koomin, to be fair to him, said after the game, of course you have to demand of this team. Winning these kind of matches because he was asked specifically about the big games. So they've been beaten Mm -hmm. by Atleti, beaten by Madrid, beaten by Bayern Munich, obviously.
0: Beaten by everyone in every big game he's played since he was Barcelona manager, except a group stage match against Juventus last season. Yeah,
1: exactly. And then he said, you know, and yes, we do have to demand these, but then he said, we're getting close to beating a big team. Now, yeah, I on. know that there's come a reality. On. Exactly, exactly. I know that there is a reality. And up to a point, I've been quite defensive of Kuman, because I think some of what he says is right. I think there is a reality there. I think there are young players that he's bringing, in through, that he's bringing through. I think there are some signs of, of, of advance in that sense. But there, that idea... I just don't I just don't Buy it entirely And just to say We're getting close To be- beating a big team People things Are you? First of all Are you? And secondly Is close to beating A big team Good enough For a club like Barcelona Even this Barcelona
0: I mean I think It's one of And to Forgive me if I sound Like a American High school teenager It's one of the Lamest things I've ever heard
1: it, Yes I, I think it's, that's yeah, I, I mean that's it. We get close to beating a big team. What yeah.
0: kind of thing is that to say as manager of Barcelona? I don't care what state you're in, what state the club is in. Come on, man! Yeah. you can't come and out that. And, say and
1: that. that, by the way, is about is about the, the if you like the construction of the the consciousness around the club, right? And about around the team and with the fans and so on. And as I say, there's been times when I've kind of been able to accept that because I think what he says sometimes is true that there is a reality and so on. But then this is before we even talk about the construction of the team. That's the construction of the conscience, the construction of the team. And I'm always very, very conscious, and I say this often, of the fact that these are qualified coaches. These are people who know the game. These are people who work on it. These are people who see their players in training. These are people who come armed with huge amounts of information that I haven't got and huge amount of expertise that I haven't got. But sometimes there are things that happen that you think, this seems almost too easy. How has this not been seen? For example, mm. I mean, you could argue that he did see it and that he took Mingether off at half-time. But, but the, the damage that Vinicius was doing, the sense of panic every time Vinicius got the ball in the first half, it struck me that, well, what's happening here? Why, why, isn't this not, why is this not being seen? Why is that defensive line still so high if you're not pressing to get the ball back? If you press to get the ball back, you make up the defensive line being high because you don't allow the other team to play those passes. But if you don't mm. put any pressure on that other team, those passes are so easy to play. And then Vinicius and, you know, Koeman said yesterday, one of the phrases he used was it's almost impossible to to, to stop that kind of counterattack."
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I'm not sure that it's almost impossible to stop. This is really a thing you want to hear from your manager as well, because <laughs> it's never impossible to stop something. There's always mm-hmm. ways. Um, and he's incredibly quick and it's very hard to do that. And, and I, 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 I thought that some of the... Some of the discourse post-game was a bit like, well, it's, it's almost like it doesn't count because it's a counter-attack. And the one Barcelona player who I thought challenged that, and it was really interesting talking to him after the game, was, was Ter Stegen. He said, look, they mm. do this really well Real Madrid, and we didn't put the pressure on them, and we didn't create chances, and they made better chances than us. And I thought, at least there's someone here analysing this, you know?
0: hmm mm. Uh, I said we'd talk about or or mention at least the comments from uh, Ramon Planes, who is the uh, technical secretary of of, of Barcelona, who who basically after the game says, We don't have the players, the high level players, or the goal scoring ability that we used to have. I'm translating here in Mm. in Spanish, he said, No tenemos los jugadores de nivel y la pegada que teníamos. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: Which, of course, is true, but I don't know if that's necessarily enough for the slightly anemic nature of the rest of the performance. If you see what I mean. It's not that you yeah. didn't You see, one of the I think the pro, one of the problems I have is that the the, the use of the word pigala, the ability to deliver that knockout blow, quite literally the punch, right? Yeah. Is that it makes it sound like you've created lots of chances but you've missed them. Really? But you haven't. You've created one chance that you missed. One. Literally, one rea- yes. one genuinely clear chance. Which is yeah. a really clear chance. And yes, it is true that if des scores, it changes everything. Potentially, because maybe Madrid have to play differently. Maybe you can then play differently. But and, and, and obviously, by Madrid scoring first, it reinforced an idea that had already taken shape. But I, I thought that was a, a, a strange comment. And he so he said it was. Um, he described it as was an aprobado, which is in, like an exam you've passed it. Barcelona mm. passed the exam, and I was thinking, have they though?
0: What is that? Like? What is that? In what is the actual figure that you get to pass the test here? Aprobado, I
1: think, five, is a six. Is it five isn't out of it? ten? It's a five out or 10? a six. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think he might actually have called it an aprobado bueno. So I suppose you're saying it's like a C plus or a B plus <laughs> or something. So words, you know, it's all right. It's all right. Um, and I just thought, well, I don't know if that's the narrative. Now, admittedly, at least now you're getting the sporting director and the manager saying the same thing. Where, of course, very, very recently, we had the manager and the president clearly saying very different things. And mm-hmm. the breakup was there.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, um, should we talk about Real Madrid and and Mm. what Carlo Ancelotti did and and, and did well? Because there were, I wouldn't say eyebrows raised when Lucas Vasquez. Ancelotti's eyebrow was probably raised. Always, always. But in, in the starting eleven, we saw Lucas Vazquez at, at right-back and it felt like a slightly more attacking option than than perhaps putting Nacho there. He went 4-3-3 as well with, with Rodrigo instead of starting Valverde in midfield. It felt like he had a pretty clear idea of how Real Madrid were going to approach this.
1: Yeah, I think he had a very clear idea and I think that's maybe one of the other differences between him and Kuman. Whether mm. you like what Ancelotti's doing or not, there was a, there was a clarity to it. Mm-hmm. Um, the message was really quite simple and we've talked about it it's a, it, he wanted it to be what the spanish always des- describe as a mid block so I, I suppose if you if you if you picture where the defensive line is i suppose you've basically got high mid and low and so mm-hmm. it's sort of somewhere in the middle so you're waiting for barca but not waiting for them too deep which i think explains why he then said after the game i'd like us to defend this solidly but a little mm-hmm. bit higher mm-hmm. um, but in the end it worked because it really was here's the team there's Vinicius, Rodrigo, and Benzema. When the team is right back here, we get it and we go boom, we go to them. And then and then and then we get the rush towards them, effectively. Mm-hmm. So it mm-hmm. starts from there. So that was very clear. I think with Lucas Vasquez, what he got was energy, rather than necessarily more attackingness. I think he got more energy than he would have done with with Nacho. Um, I think he was clear in the structure and he said in midweek that it had to be 4 3 3. He even made the point of explicitly saying you can't play Valverde in the front three. So it will it will be wingers. Um, I think that he he'd been very clear. Well, the players, the players apparently after the game, um, speaking to someone afterwards, were surprised how comfortable it had been. The Madrid players surprised mm. sort of how how simple this approach had been. And I think there's a broader question to be asked about Ancelotti, which is that this season um, he has talked a lot about the defensive side of the team. He's constantly said how unhappy what he was with them, the way they were defending early in the season. Kept saying it, didn't he? Even in quite good performance, he would say, I didn't like the way that we defended. And he came up with that really nice line, which was, I want defenders to be pessimists. I want them to yes. think the worst. I want them to be ready for the worst, so to be prepared for it, rather than believing, oh, I can run up the pitch and score. And, and then he said this weekend, he said, Look, some of the talent stuff is genetic. That's not my job, in a way. He was effectively saying, It's my job to build a structure around them which they can work and make sure that, that we're defensively strong. And they mm. were. And David Alaba played, I thought, very well indeed. Beyond the fact that he scored a goal, I thought he defended very, very well. Uh, Mendy obviously is important, if only because it gives a more defensive figure to that back four, and I think someone who who, who judges his position better than than, than the other fullbacks do. Um, and I think I, I think that you know Ancelotti was very, very clear about what he wanted, and it is back to that defensive thing. And I, I don't know if this Madrid team has enough going forward for this to be successful in Europe. I think it might be enough to be successful in, in Spain.
0: OK, we'll see. Neither of, them are, neither of them are top of the table going into this fixture. Yeah. They were fourth and eighth, respectively.
1: Yeah, because we, I think, I mean, we should be clear about this. Madrid played well and they, they executed this plan pretty well. But this isn't a great performance. It's not, it's not like, wow, this is one to remember. It's, it's a performance where it felt like they... And it's difficult to say this because it's intangible and you can't judge it. But it felt like they were playing slightly within themselves. Or at least they were playing in a way that we know what to do. Mm. You, rather, than, rather than, right, we're going for them. OK, we've, we've got it now, and we'll, we'll just mm-hmm. play from here.
0: If you disagree, tell us why we're absolutely wrong, send us a question, and we'll answer it on the Q&A pod that we're recording tomorrow for patrons. Uh, there's lots more that we could discuss. The final thing I want to mention about the Classico is the atmosphere, Mm. 86,422 fans there, which is possibly quite a few more than we were expecting. It's still, though, the lowest Classico attendance since 1988, bearing in mind that the stadium holds 99,000, so Mm. it wasn't full. It wasn't far off being full. It looked pretty full, and it felt like a proper occasion, certainly at the beginning.
1: It did, yeah. Yeah, it did. Uh, I mean, I personally, look, this is just a personal thing, and I don't know what other people feel about it. I feel like these games should be at night. There's something a bit more dramatic, a bit noisier about, How, about the the people,
0: But the people in China need to watch it, Sid.
1: Well, yeah, but you can still you make know? a... But, it, but, but then there's people on the other... It's sort of, obviously, there's people in lots That's of... That's why 4.15 of,
0: is the perfect time.
1: Well, it is for that market, but what about other markets? So, you know, there's, there's never a perfect time for everybody... Unless we all well,
0: live... well, well, no, it's four fifteen. That's the perfect time. Yeah, because everybody's awake. Even the Pacific Coast, you can get up at seven o'clock and watch it. It's not in the middle of the night.
1: Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, okay. But anyway, uh, I think in terms of an occasion, I mean, you are because because in fairness, you asked me about the atmosphere rather than the television yes. audience. Um, yes. So, and it was good. Uh, it yeah, wasn't. Yeah. No, I, think, I, I think. what I was a, I think what stopped it being full apparently was was season ticket holders not turning up. There's, there's doubts about. Yes. Uh, you know, there's some season ticket holders who aren't. Turning up, there are some season ticket holders who still don't seem to have quite worked out what's happening with their tickets. Um, and but in terms of the tickets on sale, I think they would sold almost all of them, despite them being pretty expensive. By the way, it's not like these were these were selling yeah. very cheap. Um, and it was good. By the end, obviously, it was drifting a bit. And when when Agüero scored, there was a bit of a like, oh, come on, then is there a chance? But it literally nobody thought that it was. Uh, but it was nice. It was nice to see this this game. With that noise, I didn't think it was particularly hostile. But then I suppose that might again be explained by by significant numbers of tourists who perhaps l- come with less hostility towards Real Madrid than than than, than Barcelona fans would th- from from the city. Oh,
0: okay, that's interesting. Not enough, not enough hostility for your life.
1: I or... mean, also there isn't really a hate figure at Real Madrid now. I don't suppose either.
0: Well, they were whistling Vinicius. In the, yeah, in the but first I think that's because they were
1: fr- frightened of him.
0: Yes. Uh, all right. Listen, like I said, there's lots more that we could discuss. But if you want us to talk about something, send us a question, and and we will. Um, I'm actually conscious of the fact that you might not have seen Atletico Madrid against Real Sociedad. No, I saw it? that
1: one because we had did. To cover, yeah, I, we had to cover that one. I, the one I haven't seen, to my great despair, of course, uh, is the, is the Sevilla Levante.
0: Well, yeah, no one watched that. I mean, that was uh, I, I, mean, I literally saw about. On I
1: literally saw about 15 minutes of it. In the mobile unit outside the Camp new, But that was all I, all I got to see.
0: Oliver Torres scored an unbelievable goal for Sevilla, the first goal. Um, Munir scored a fabulous goal for Sevilla as well. Morales scored a brilliant goal for Levante as well. There were some really great strikes in that. But we didn't watch the game, so we can't really talk about that. Let's talk about Atleti against, against La Real, which finished 2-2. La Real were flying. They were 2-0 up at half-time. Emmanuel Alguacil going with a back five. Surprising everybody. Loads of injuries as per usual for, for La Real. No first choice left back in the squad... He had players out in basically every line of the pitch. But he said, nah, don't worry, not a problem. And I really like that about him and I like that. Whenever he's asked about the injuries, he said, nah, it's fine. It's cool. I will just get on with it. I've got players. It's not a problem. Don't worry yeah. about the injuries. Played five at the back. And, and to begin with, Atleti had absolutely no idea of how to break them down despite starting Griezmann, uh, Suarez and Jao Felix for the first time together.
1: Yeah, uh, it's not just um, Atlético Madrid that couldn't work it out. Nor could I. I'm, I'm holding up to you now my notebook. I mean, I don't know how well you can see that. You probably can't, but it's got arrows on it. I was trying yeah. to work out the Real Sofidad team as the, as the first few minutes unfolded. It took a while, it. man. It took a while. Well, it took a while because I was I, watching
0: it with two ex-managers, and they didn't know what was yeah, going on. I was on for looking a while, at it, thinking, yeah. "Hang on a
1: minute, is Thaldua playing at right wing? Yeah. But yeah, yeah so yeah. is Sorloff. <laughs> they are both playing at right wing, and I think that doesn't make any sense." And actually, I don't know if you heard this, and I thought it was really, really interesting. Imanol Aguathila, after the game, admitted that he played a different formation for the first five minutes to try and confuse Atletico. So they wouldn't understand what... So he said, he said they put... So Saldua becomes almost this right winger to start with. So it is a four, but you've got this random player there. And then he drops in to make kind of a five. So you've got, you've got a line of five, and you've got Guevara <laughs> with Marino. And then you had Silva, Isak, and Soloff, sort of in a triangle, not quite in a line, more in a triangle. At the at the top, and it was a very unusual formation for them because they they'd normally play either a four three three or or a four two three one or sometimes a four one, and then the rest of the team structured in front of that. Um, and they were really really good. They they the way they cut through Atletico for for the first goal was was superb. Admittedly, partly drawn out, uh, partly aided by the fact that Felipe was drawn so far out to win a ball that he couldn't win. But it was mm-hmm. I think it was four. Conceptive first time passes Ping yeah. out Ping back in again Ping out and ping through Bing boom boom And he's clean through yeah. And it was they, they, were, they were very very good And we've talked about them this year They're One of the things that's interesting About Real Sociedad this year I think Is that They are slightly different To the way they've been Over the last 18 months there's mm. been a slightly more defensiveness to them. There's been a bit more variety in formations. They've been fortunate a couple of times. They were fortunate against Elche. Uh They were fortunate against Mallorca a little bit with the late goal, which was a bit of a deflection. Um, but as you say, they have these problems. They said, right, we'll find a solution. Mm. And this was a very, very unexpected solution. And it worked really well. Admittedly, they then found themselves in the second half with Atletico bombing at them. But Imanol said after the game, I really quite like this line. He said, well, what? So we suffered against Atletico? Well, yeah. Three days ago, the almighty Liverpool suffered against Atletico Madrid. We didn't, for a minute, think we would come here and not, not have it difficult. And I also thought there was something very interesting in what he said post-game. It's the first time I think I've ever heard him engage with the idea of competing for the title. Now, he didn't exactly, but he hinted at it. Like, every other time he said, oh no, use that great Spanish phrase, it's anecdotico. You know the league. No. Our league position is just an anecdote. This doesn't mean anything. And then this time, he actually talked about how it's difficult to stay there. The team that wins the league will probably get eighty points, and it's quite difficult for us to get that now. So, so he's not engaging with it in the sense he's not saying yes, we can do this, but he's actually engaging with the, if you like, the mechanics of it. And I don't think I've ever heard him do that before. What sort of actually making the
0: calculations, yeah. thinking in his mind how many yeah. you're going to need, which to made me win think
1: it. he's thought about this. He's mm. wondered whether this is possible.
0: Mm. Well, they're top of the table after ten games. It's you know we, we almost <laughs> what was
1: it? Let's the not do the math. <laughs> almost a quarter of the way through. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah uh, we're we're over are. a quarter. Yeah, we quarter. are now. Exactly. We were on the threshold before. That's what confused us.
0: Mm. Um, Atleti once again conceding first. They've gone behind to Villarreal, which they ended up drawing very fortuitously uh, Espanol, which they ended up winning, also quite fortuitously Um, Getafe they won that as well late on Alaves they lost that Milan they won Liverpool they lost and now La Real which they, they drew we're not used to this we're not used to seeing Atletico Madrid having to come from behind not usually they go in front know how to defend their lead shut up shop and they're solid that's not working this season and they're conceding much more goals than we used to as
1: well What was it Simeone said he said we score two score two score two score two we've got to stop conceding uh, he was asked if they if he was worried about this, and he said yes. Now, obviously, in Spanish, there is that nice uh, uh, what would you call it linguistic quirk, which is that worried to be worried about something and to be busy doing something is almost the same word. So he said, "We are hmm. preocupados, pero también ocupados," in other words, yes, we're preoccupied by this, we're worried by this, but we're also you know kind of applying our minds to it uh, to try and find a solution, and. And I thought it was interesting that he said he was worried because he, 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 he never normally admits that. And he said he was asked about playing Griezmann, Jao Felix and Suarez together and whether this could happen again. And he said it could if we can find the balance mm. to make this work so that we're not getting caught at the other end. And obviously one of the ways of providing the balance is a player has to go from somewhere if those three are going to play unless Griezmann plays as a midfielder. Mm. A player has to go from somewhere. This weekend, of course, what the player that went from was from the back. So they played four instead of five. And I don't think their defensive problems are necessarily about that because I think with better personnel or better concentration or or better fitness levels of certain players, then I think you can perfectly well play that formation with a four rather than a five. But of course it meant losing Carrasco because he's been this Mm. kind of hybrid left wing back, sort of left winger sort of thing that he was. Um, You can keep Trippier because he can be a right back as well as a right wing back. So that's okay. But you... You, you do then have doubts about your defenders. And, and I think you have doubts in particular because I think Felipe is slightly flawed at times. I think without Savage, they've got problems. He was brilliant last year. Jimenez keep keeps having physical problems. And then the other defender, of course, is Odomoso. Now, I think last year Odomoso was brilliant. And I think he was really important because he played that hybrid role of being the left centre-back who became the left-back when Carrasco went up the pitch. And I think he was really important because he was the one... What do we call this? Who had Salida, who who brings the ball out, who had nine yeah. for a pass. But I think defensively, he makes mistakes that others don't make. And I think there is a lack of security about that back four now. Mm. Uh, and I must confess, I don't know what the answer is. But if you change the structure to fit the front three in then, of course, by definition, that probably needs a bit of time to, to bed in. And yesterday, by the way, I have no idea what formation Atletico were playing by the end. No. Because he, be so yeah. he made yeah, so many was changes. He made so many changes, but it was changes that were not like this player for another one that's similar. Or even the, as obvious as this player goes up front and we'll just lose a man at the back. It really was repositioning people all over the place. Um, yes. And it did work, in fairness, because they did create chances. And, oh, and yeah. they do look good, Atletico, with the ball. And they do look like a properly good team. But I wonder if it's one that they, yeah, well, to use Diego Simeone's own words, that hasn't yet found the balance between those mm-hmm. two things.
0: Mm-hmm. Luis Suarez basically didn't touch the ball but scored twice.
1: I, I, I honestly, genuinely, <laughs> genuinely do not know what to say about Suarez in this sense because I will admit this, and you know, regular listeners all know that I I, I defend Suarez in, in the sense that I think I think we shouldn't overlook the significance of scoring goals. Uh, which I know sounds beating obvious, but I think we sometimes do. We seem to assume that, oh, he's just the guy on the end of it, and if he wasn't there, someone else would be on the end of it. But it doesn't work like that. It really mm. doesn't work like that. But it is also true that I watch games like this one and, and a few others this season, away at Getafe, which I was at, was a similar similar game. As you know, I think away at Getafe, he actually played quite well bringing others into the game, but, but I've certainly seen him this season play games We think, he's done nothing, you've got to take him off. And then he mm. scores. He and doesn't was, take him off. And he that's doesn't take thing. him off. There was a game, and I can't remember which one it was, but it was definitely the wonder because I saw someone who works with Simeone. Okay, he's taken
0: him off three times. Okay. I
1: saw someone who works with Simeone, and he'd have said to me, he'd admitted, Simeone had admitted that he was getting ready to take Suarez off when Suarez scored. And I can't remember which game it was. But that's the thing about Suarez. If you want presence in the area, he is still their best striker by a very, very long way. But mm. he's definitely not their best footballer.
0: Hmm. Oh, goodness, goodness, no. But But six goals now.
1: Exactly. And what if you didn't have him, I think think they wouldn't have come back in these games that they've had to come back in. And I don't just mean that because, well, state in the bleeding obvious, look, there's his goals that prove it. I think it's more than that.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, he scored both goals when they came back against Getafe. One of them was unbelievably good. Um, scored both goals against uh, La Real, scored uh, against uh, Barcelona as well. Well, we know he's going to keep scoring and yeah, he's going to keep leaving us scratching our heads because there's loads of games where he doesn't do anything and then he's absolutely vital. Uh, there's so much other stuff we could talk about but we've run out of time so we'll save it either for your question podcast or maybe for later on in the week uh, as well before we go the segunda division almeria top they won 4-1 at mirandes on sunday bar up to second they beat cartagena 2-1 on friday sporting a third but they were beaten at home by a resurgent valladolid las palmas are going well in fourth and oviedo won 2-1 a uh, Leganes are still in the relegation zone they were beaten 2-1 at Butarque by Tenerife coach Asier Garitano said Borja Garfes won't play again for Leganes after the on-loan Atletico Madrid forward skipped the match to attend his brother's wedding when he was specifically told you can't go anyway, anyway uh, it's not going well for our favourite cucumber growers uh, Sydney uh, thank you very much we'll speak tomorrow on the Q&A pod for our lovely patrons if You fantastic listeners aren't patrons. Don't worry, we'll be back as ever here next Monday. Adios.
1: Cheerio.